The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 26 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as the House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is I, as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trio's tag team partners. To my right, the educator of excellence. Educator, how are you doing today? Oh, we are just ducky, as ducky as all can be. Here we are now, Thursday, midway through the month. And man, the first couple of weeks of school has just been kicking my butt. Does does the month of September fly by for you? I mean, we are already halfway through this month, and I feel like it was March like, it, like it's yesterday. Just, it's just a blur, and I think really it's the shock of just not having the consistency, the normalcy of the what used to be the normal day to day classes, and now the abbreviated schedule with some of the students coming you know, just two days out of five versus some kids coming, uh, not at all and are completely online on virtual. It's just, uh, exhausting without a doubt. All right. And to my left is none other than the masked library, AKA Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how are you? Oh man, I am doing well. Um, I'm, I'm not at school, but you know, I'm back to work and I am fully expecting like the educator said, as the school year gets going and more school is closed and more education is being done from home, I fully expect to be sending more books and DVDs and other supplies in and out of my work to assist all the kids at home. So I, I, I think uh, once educator says we're, we're closed up and that's you know online all for everyone, I think I'm going to see a spike the very next hour. Yeah, I can, I can I see your logic there. I would imagine. Uh, unfortunately, if a kid has a due date, they got to wait four days for that book. They just can't get it instantly, you know? Extended. It's a seven-day one. Oh, it's seven days now? Seven days. The, the, amount of, the amount of testing and research that I see is astounding. It's kind of scary, but it's very interesting. Yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine that would be uh, just kind of something to uh, scratch, your, scratch your head and, and just be like, huh. That's kind of cool. So, uh, well, that's good, guys. I mean, we have a, a, a doozy of a pay-per-view to talk about. This, of course, is our penultimate episode. Um, we have made it to pretty much, we're close to that finish line, guys. Our finish line is literally next week. Did you Did you think we would have made it through when we started this? I honestly, I didn't know what to expect from this project in that. <laughs> I know that you know treats and hellions. You guys had had ventured on uh, often and had attempted previous projects like this in the past, 
and I really didn't know what my role was really going to be having never done a podcast before or been involved in the process whatsoever. Uh, I, I'm very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with, uh, work with you guys on this. Very fortunate to be able to take time out of my week and just hang out with you guys and just to be able to reminisce on some great, great shows, some awful, awful shows that we have, you know, reviewed and have had sat through. Um, it's crazy to think that we're already starting to brainstorm. You know, we've got season two on the horizon and we're already thinking about plans for after Christmas and season three and in and, and the future that this could come, that this could eventually become. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to great things being able to come from this project. You know, I, I think I can say for myself and for Kevin Hellions who have done podcasts in, in, in the past that don't worry, educator, you got really comfortable in your role really quick. I mean, I think it was what week three, Kevin, you started having to separate the blue M&Ms for him before we, before we would record. Uh, I had to pick up a trailer for him. Uh, you know, his list of demands, making sure he got the Hasbro's back from my brother. Um, you know, just a litany of stuff, just a litany of stuff. So, you know, next season I expect another, you know, batch delivery of my old Hasbro's. I mean, I've heard of performers having the rider of all the stuff that they want in order to perform, but educator comes in with a Cardona. I just didn't know what to do. Especially when you're talking those figure demands, then it's a Cardona. So, guys, I, I, I do want to uh, talk about something because my life has actually changed since the last time we talked. <gasps> You're pregnant. No, that's that's just pizza. Oh, okay. So, I went to Walgreens, and I found the exclusive Thanksgiving candy corn. No. No. Are you okay, Kevin? No, because I've done this. Not even done that one before, but I've done similar before. So I tried it, right? And of course, you have like seven different flavors in there. There is cranberry, sweet potato pie, like you know, like uh, green beans, turkey. It was awful. It was not smart at all. You know what was good though? The cranberry was actually really good. I could see that. Like one. The, that there sense. was like two to three flavors. Like the flavors that were supposed to be sweet were really good. But like, oh my God, the turkey. Oh my God, it was so bad. Like a mashed potatoes might taste like a butter, you know, so that that might be all right. Um, corn, maybe. Stuffing was weird. It's probably all spice. You know, the stuffing one was weird. Um, yeah, don't do it, guys. Don't do it. Oh, actually, do it. Yeah, whatever. How much money did you drop on that bag? It was like three bucks. Ugh, I want to say probably three yeah. bucks. Wish you had back three forty nine. I mean, it's it's playing roulette with your taste buds, really. Well, okay. So when you get them, a question, Kevin, because you, you said you've done similar things in the past, especially when you have a flavor bag, if you will. Um, do you just take a handful and throw nope. them in, or do you, nope. I individually tried each one? Yeah. Yep. Individually, each one. Um, if someone's nearby you, you have to try each one and then you have to share it with them to try as well to get a consensus of it. And then, and then it becomes like a horrible thing. And the only way to get it out of your head is to share it with others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was brutal, guys. 
I, I never, never want to experience that ever again. Educators just looking at me. I just, it's just money that could have been much better spent. Speaking of money that could have been better spent, educator, question for you. How's your wine bar? Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not a wine bar. It's just a, a, a so, so for the listeners, for the listeners, uh, one, um, I feel safe talking about this because your wife doesn't listen. No. Let's be honest here. No. She's, she's not listening. Um, she'd have no idea. So she wanted you. Okay. You bought like two bottles of wine. Was it a little bit of the bubbly Chris Jericho? What, what, what did you buy? Bubbly. Uh, a couple, a couple of just bottles of wine just to have, not necessarily for us, but to be social. If we ever have company that were to drop by, just to have options available. And then we were restocking our stash of hard liquor. We, we just a few bottles that we have to do mixers, you know, rums, rum and cokes and screwdrivers and vodka crayons and just a couple of the basics, the core stuff. And she was just noticing that, you know, the cabinet and that's that corner cabinet in the kitchen where everything is just tucked far, far away. And we would just, you know, put it up there out of sight, out of mind, but know that it's there in case we ever have company over. We ended up getting um, a fancy mixed drink maker, a smoothie machine, essentially, that could be used to make, you know, tropical drinks, mixed drinks, and so on. Of course, alcohol-based. And because I had purchased that for her, now all of a sudden it was like, hey, we need an actual, like, wet bar. Well, we're not, we didn't actually get a full wet bar. <laughs> wet bar. You need a wet bar like you're drinking Harvey Wallbangers exactly. later in the but 70s. She, she wanted, like, just an actual separate defined location and cabinet to, to store everything, including her new drink machine. So... Yeah, we had to go shopping and get one. <laughs> now, I will say that the Educator household has always looked very nice, very mature, very inviting, very like you could take a picture of any room and put it up in, you know, a, a design magazine or something. It's always looked wonderful. As opposed to my stuff, where numerous times over the years, someone has seen a picture of my home and thought, geez, I can't believe you let your kid have his stuff in every room of the house. I'm like, no, that's that's mine. Is it mine toys? See, his are loose. Mine are mitten box still. That's how you can tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Kevin, I feel like you live in a rummage sale. <laughs> Dude, I, I spent the last week cleaning out uh, one of the rooms, and it's now my comic room. It's, I have like uh... two more things I want to do in there. I uh, so I actually went out and bought a bookshelf today. Ooh. Not because I have books to put on it, but I have these <laughs> AEW wrestling figures that are gonna look nice on it. <laughs> so uh, so, it's a booker shelf. Yeah. Should have ordered a detolf from IKEA. I just going with a just a straight nice twenty five dollar Walmart bookshelf, a little mainstays. There you are go. They, is it three shelves? Uh, it's like three or four, I think. Okay, it might be the same one I just bought two of for the comic project I mentioned. Jeez. Oh, Probably the center shelf is stationary, and then the other three are adjustable up and down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. So I'm putting it together today while I'm watching Rock Bottom, okay? And uh, it's not going well. <laughs> it's just not going well at all. Apparently, you need something called screwdrivers to, to you know, make these things go up. Ooh, ooh, you know where you can get a screwdriver? 
Uh, where's that, Kevin? From the Educator's Wet Bar. There you go. <laughs> Put him punch. There you go. <laughs> Sounds like you uh, subscribe to Matt Cardona's uh, ability to put together furniture because he has absolutely no tools either, and he's he's yeah. He's, it must be the name. Yeah, it must be the name. Um, but oh, uh, you, you need to find a Chelsea to do it for you. Oh God, if only. <laughs> you know, I haven't had anyone swipe right my wrestling buddies photos, so I don't know. Maybe I gotta I gotta take that photo. I'll, I'll take that photo and get that up. We can we can get it on the Twitters there, Kevin. Probably the okay. most likes that. Uh, Twitter site will ever see is the photo of me with my wrestling buddies. That's what I'm thinking. So, uh, but uh, Kevin, I know, like you said, you 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 bought two bookshelves, so you know exactly what to display. And uh, you know, I gave you the task this week to help out our sponsor, HalloweenCostumes.com and Fun.com. Of course, if you've been listening to any of the podcasts on the Retro Network, you should be aware that they are sponsoring the Retro Network uh, for this fall season. Uh, all the way through the rest of the year, actually. So the HalloweenCostumes.com, you click on the link in our show notes and you get 20% off one item. That coupon is good up until Halloween. But if you click on the Fun.com link and you go to their, their site, you get 15% off. And that coupon code is actually good for the rest of the year. So after you know we get through Halloween, uh, you can start a little Christmas shopping. I'm picking some stuff out. But Kevin, you scoured the internet looking at their site. So what is your item of the week? In times of turmoil, in times like these, beliefs are contagious. And so are the great deals at HalloweenCostumes.com. From now until October 31st, you can enjoy 20% off thanks to HalloweenCostumes.com and the Retro Network. Now I'm looking for something with a, a striking mask this season, and I think I'm going to go with the Cardinal Copia from Ghost full body costume. Or maybe, maybe just one of the nameless ghouls. Actually, maybe both. Because with a deal like that 20% coupon, I mean, that's a no-brainer. If we're square, if we're on the level, me and HalloweenCostumes.com, then I don't think there's a better deal out there this Halloween season. All right, so let's get right into our pay-per-view. Of course, we are discussing Rock Bottom in Your House. Takes place on December 13th, 1998 in Vancouver, British Columbia at the General Motors place. Over 20,000 people in attendance. Insane crowd. What did you what did you guys think uh seeing that crowd? Man, these Canadian pay-per-views for the in your houses just have an absolutely insane house. I just you could not get these numbers in the United States at that time. I just Man, Canada still loves them or loved them some WWF at the time. And man, they were hot for this show and uh, hot for Owen Hart and loved, loved, loved the uh, the uh, Mankind Rock match. Yeah, I mean, how do you not see that crowd and go, oh, we're doing this again. We're doing this again as quickly as we can. I mean, geez, we've seen indie promotions that do a show in a town, see how big the gate is and go, oh, yeah, we're coming back here first before we come back to some other small town like who do, you know when did wrestling become a business 
it's insane to see this crowd. Um, it's also interesting, too, because they have been phasing the in-your-house branding from these pay-per-views out. And uh, the only mention we really get of the in-your-house pay-per-views is in the first portion of this pay-per-view. Before you even get to the title screen, before you get to anything, you have The Rock cutting a promo from Planet Hollywood, Vancouver. Now, this question is for Kevin Hellions. Kevin, did you own the Planet Hollywood, Vancouver shirt? Did I own a Vancouver shirt? Because you were big on getting Planet Hollywood shirts from places you have never visited. Yeah, and Hard Rock shirts. The hard, There used to be a good eBay market for the Hard Rock shirts because all the backs would be different depending on uh, what city you got it from. I don't think I had Vancouver one for Planet Hollywood. I had Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Miami, New York, Chicago. <laughs> Would you just wear these like every, like you could wear a new one every day. Is that, was that your goal no, for did, a week? All right. One, I did try to wear a different t-shirt every day for a year, like five years ago. And then, <laughs> Wait, do you own 365 t-shirts? I did then. I did a whole Facebook series on it. This is why I don't follow you on Facebook. Well, you know, join my family. So, <laughs> but um, no, I had a, I had a big eBay store at the time, so I was buying it for that. I had like six hundred pieces of clothing up on eBay at that point. So, so just so you guys know, from now on, we have to refer to the show as In the Rock's House. Oh, okay. Sounds about right. So, so following that up, we get the video intro, and it's really of Taker and Austin, and then we get the pay per view. Um, name, uh, title card, and it is sponsored by the video game Glover. We're going to throw it to our retro expert, uh, Mr. Educator of Excellence. How much does a copy of Glover go for no, on not, the retro market? Not very much on the retro market these days. Probably the most expensive version would be the Nintendo 64 version, but, you know. Which is Glover 64. Glover 64, right. It's kind of interesting, though, t- to see how the, the cross-section between the video games and professional wrestling was at this time. Because this is, like, I think the fourth fourth time a video game or video game company has sponsored uh, one of these in-your-house events. Yeah, absolutely. Two? I'm doing a little research right here, and apparently there was a special edition version of Glover for the Nintendo 64 it was called the T-shirt edition of Glover, so I'm assuming it probably came packaged in box with, uh, uh, of course, a T-shirt in itself, and <laughs> <laughs> as its name states, um, probably had a weird label or an extra or a different kind of label on the cover. Um, but it it goes for about looks like four to five times what a Lucy copy of Glover sixty four would go for. So it's up to eight dollars. No, actually, it's about fifty eight bucks. Oh, it's wow. crazy. Maybe it's a Planet Hollywood Glover shirt. <laughs> Maybe. I'm just wondering if you can choose your player in Glover. I don't know if I want to be Danny or Donald. Option two. Option two. Maybe I could be Ed Glover. Do that Glover dance. Are we sure we want to continue with the podcast after <laughs> we're done with the in your house? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So, uh, so anyways, we get full pyro and we actually are greeted by the King and Michael Cole. 
Um, you know, when I saw this, I was like, this is Michael Cole's first pay-per-view that he's calling. Um, of course, Jim Ross would have had the Bell's palsy um, about uh, about two weeks earlier because he got it during the Carnage uh, event. Yeah, he had a combination of uh, Bell's palsy issues as well as uh, issues with his mother being sick or passing away, I believe. So I get it's just I, perhaps stress of the job combined with his mom's illness. Uh, unfortunately led to one of his first uh, bouts that he had with Bell's palsy. So giving him some time off, well-deserved time off, obviously to recuperate, to help cope and manage with what he was dealing with. So we have Michael Cole doing commentary on pay-per-view, the first of a few that he would be doing um, in this kind of a new role where he's used to Michael Cole being more of a backstage interviewer and so on. Certainly today he's now considered the voice of the WWE uh, but yeah, very, very young, very inexperienced at commentating Michael Cole. And, uh, you know, was kind of led through this pay-per-view with the efforts of Jerry Lawler. How, how did you think he did for his first pay-per-view show? For his first show, certainly, you know, tolerable, manageable. You can tell, of course, with his experience over time, how he became more and more comfortable on the mic. Honestly, this probably was... A lot of he was just being fed his lines by Vince McMahon and whoever else was back in Gorilla. I would imagine Bruce Pritchard as well uh, would be feeding him info, uh, what things to say on camera and so on. But for what it was in his first efforts, yeah, he pulled it off and did a did a, did a fantastic job for the position he was put in. Yeah, I I think he did as well as he could do in the situation. And honestly, thankfully, with all of his backstage work and everything, he had familiarity with the product. Because we've seen people come in and announce that don't know jack about what's going on, and it shows. He at least knows what's going on, and it helped. Probably put him ahead of a lot of other people would have been on their first night. Yeah, and you can tell, I think, as I was listening to the commentary, a lot of the things he would say, he would he, you could tell he was nervous because he would read it fast or, or say mm-hmm. it fast. And he didn't take a beat to just kind of let some things breathe. Uh, but overall, I, di- I didn't mind him. And it's amazing to think w- what he sounds like now compared to what he sounded like then. And just in general, how overproduced the announcers are now. But why don't we get into our first match? Uh, first person to come out is Val Venus, and he is greeted by a huge eruption from the crowd. And his tag team partner is the Godfather for the team known as Supply and Demand. And they are taking on D'Lo and Mark Henry, who actually come out with uh, PMS, the Pretty Mean Sisters, which was uh, Terry Reynolds and Jacqueline. What did you guys think of this opening contest? Obviously, there's a lot of things that has happened with what was the former Nation of Domination. We had just done the, the double episode talking about uh, Rock being kicked out of the nation and just having a match with Mark Henry. Excuse me, educator. Yeah, it's the Twin Magic episode. Yeah, the, we did the uh, double episode talking about the uh, the Rock having his match with Mark Henry, and you know how the Nation of Domination, I guess, is no more. But there really didn't seem to be that I recall any kind of implosion or infighting between the other three members of the nation, uh, you know, Kama Mustafa, D'Lo Brown, and Mark Henry. And now all of a sudden we've got a character adjustment here with the Godfather now playing the the 
pimpin' ain't easy version of this character with the bright flashy pants and the and the vests and the cane and and the girls walking to the ring. So it's a it's a different rendition uh, of the Godfather character. I, I don't know if I was I, I don't re- being recall as being a fond member of this version of the character. Granted, huge pop, of course, with the ladies in the crowd and so on uh, coming to the ring with him and then certainly getting the, the crowd all fired up. I just I don't remember the storyline of now all of a sudden he's, you know, a face and he is now feuding with his former teammates from the Nation of Domination. The second thing I have a question on, and, and, and you had brought it up, you, you said these guys are referred to as supply and demand. Do you do you, any either of you actually remember them being referred to as that on TV or being introduced coming to the you know the ring together as being called supply and demand? It it's it's referenced you know in. You know, with the Wikipedia review of the uh, of the pay per view for the results, and I've seen other like websites reporting it as such. I don't ever remember on commentary, Jr. Michael Cole, King, or even a ring announcer ever referring to Val Venus and Godfather as supply and demand. Do either of you? I mean, they were always introduced separately for the most part so Val does his music and entrance godfather does his music and entrance and it's tough to introduce a tag team as one unified name when they're coming out separately i gotta imagine at some point maybe wwe magazine maybe an interview wwf.com's you know bigger at this point i gotta imagine at some point they threw it out there and honestly probably couldn't copyright it and that's why they didn't go further with it i mean it's the same thing with um with Owen and Jarrett, were they officially ever dubbed as Canadian country or no, I don't believe no, we so. All knew but, it though, didn't we? Exactly. I mean, it, it was just all like, just, you know, commonly referred to as that, but you know, never officially spoken of on screen. Yeah. And it's kind of funny too, too. Like they always seemed like Val and Godfather always seemed like an oddball pairing. But just to see where their careers have gone, they actually kind of do go hand in hand. I mean, with Val running uh, the the dispensary and, of course, Godfather, you know, running the nightclubs and stuff like that. You know, um, just growing up, it always seemed odd that they were together, but they they really do fit well together, I think. The the splitting up a team thing, because we've seen it rec- you know, in recent wrestling, too. Why is the first feud got to be against each other? Like, why not just have a team or faction split up and be like, listen, we're not together anymore. You go your way. I go my way. If you need me, call, you know, yell for me. I'll come help. But our careers are going different paths. Like, we don't always need a feud of them against each other for however many months. And I don't re- I don't recall or remember so fondly of this particular team, Godfather and Valvinus. I think the team that actually that spun off from the nation that I remember more. And I mean, I know Mark Henry and D'Lo, they tagged a lot. But Godfather and D'Lo, they also had, you know, a pretty decent team. And I remember at WrestleMania, didn't they come out both to, like, pimping in easy gear and D'Lo really hamming it up yeah. with the bolo hat and so on? Because I think they ended up having a match with, like, Boss Man and Bull Buchanan, who are both in the, you know, the tackle riot gear kind of deal. Sounds familiar. All right. We see towards the start of the match, Val Venus with an Arn Anderson-like spine buster. Uh, onto D'Lo Brown after throwing, doing an Irish whip to D'Lo into the ropes. 
Godfather eventually tags in and clotheslines D'Lo and attempts to do the Ho Train avalanche from one corner to the opposite corner, only for D'Lo Brown to move out of the way, causing the Godfather to crash into the turnbuckle. Mark Henry eventually tags into the match event and is then a recipient of a successful Ho Train avalanche from the Godfather. Mark Henry sends the Godfather into the ropes and ends up doing a scoop power slam onto the Godfather. Mark Henry attempts to do a leap uh, or a leaping elbow drop, and he ends up missing as the Godfather rolls out of the way. This allows Godfather to tag in Val Venus, and Val Venus gets sent into the corner by Mark Henry, and Mark Henry successfully follows up with an avalanche splash to Val Venus. D'Lo tags back into the match and sends Val into the ropes and catches him for a very, very nice-looking sky-high powerbomb where he does that scoop under the armpits and does the sit-out powerbomb, and we only get a two-count from referee Jimmy Corderas. D'Lo does go to the top rope and attempts for what Michael Cole did call as the sky-high, but really it's his low-down frog splash, and Val Venus ended up rolling out of the way from that that frog splash. We see both teams do a tag out after uh, D'Lo missed that frog splash. So now Godfather and Val end up doing a double suplex to Mark Henry, who re-entered into the match. Godfather and D'Lo begin to argue at ringside, trying to separate the group of hoes that escorted Godfather down to the ring from uh, separating them from Terry uh, Terry Runnels and Jackie. And in the middle of the whole separation, Jackie ends up sneaking away from this confrontation and she gets involved in the match. She gets into the ring and she ends up slapping Val Venus in the face while well, she pants him first and then slaps him in the face. And on the rebound from the slap, Mark Henry hits a stiff clothesline after bouncing off of the ropes. He ends up hitting a big splash onto Val Venus. All this going on behind referee Jimmy Corderas is back as he's still attending to the Godfather and Terry Runnels and D'Lo arguing with the hose. But after the big splash from uh, Mark Henry on the Val, we end up seeing a one, two, three pin and D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry are victorious for this match. Like it's not a bad match. It's not good or great or anything, but you know, it's not a bad match. I like the combination of D'Lo and Mark Henry um, a lot. I didn't understand for, I, I still am not completely sure who was supposed to be the heel in this match. Like I just, an argument could be made for either. Um, Mark Henry should not be the one of the team that is in trouble in the ring and needs to make the tag. Like it would make more sense for D'Lo to get the beating, need to make the hot tag to Mark Henry, who's bigger, have him come in for one or two minutes at his skill level at the time to clean house. Um, like, like you were saying, with Val Venus having his trunks pulled down, one of two thongs seen this evening. Stay tuned, kids, for number two. And thing I never noticed, because we always, we've commented, you you know, three of us wrestling fans for years on how short Terry Reynolds is. Is Terry, are Terry and Jacqueline the same height? Because they look the same height coming out with D'Lo. I, I'm pretty sure, uh, Terry Reynolds has some pretty tall heels to allow. Yeah, that's fair. To that's fair. No one used their heels as a weapon in this match. So right, I missed exactly. That. But Jacqueline was known to, uh, you know, wear some pretty tall heels as well. 
Help me, remind me, I believe the storyline surrounding why all of a sudden D'Lo Brown is with Terry Runnels and uh, Jackie. If you guys can refresh my memory, I believe there was a supposed storyline where Terry Runnels was pregnant and in a match she got like bounced off the ropes onto the floor and she claimed that she, as a result of that bump she ended from D'Lo, she ended up miscarrying the baby. And I think down the road, we end up finding out that she was never pregnant all along. Does that sound correct? Yeah. yeah. yeah was was, was the baby supposedly from Val from their time together? Yeah. But then oh. he said he had a vasectomy, so it wasn't true. Okay. Um, D- D'Lo showed more concern than Val did, so that's why she's with him. Ah, uh, that makes sense. So moving on, we go to the Superstar line where Doc Hendricks is interviewing Triple H with, of course, a very stoic China. And uh, they're mentioning the fact that HBK is the commissioner now. What is what is going on? HBK is back in the fold. God, I forgot about this, and there was a reason for it too. Why would they not have him come back with DX? So he still can't wrestle. He still can't wrestle, and they wanted a replacement for Sergeant Slaughter, who's now kind of, sort of, like one of Vince McMahon's stooges, along with Patterson and Briscoe. And I really think they brought Michaels back to kind of be a thorn in the side of DX, uh, specifically the Triple H, uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. In this particular interview, I don't know if it was me. I mean, Triple H is coming off of the knee injury, the surgery, the rehab. Did he look out of shape, thicker, but not like muscular thicker, but more like, you know, a little like he's missed some time and reps in the gym? To me, he, he looked smaller look, but thicker. He didn't look pudgy, Monsoon, but he did look like I did after being home for four months from quarantine. You have never looked like Triple H, Kevin. <laughs> so we follow that up with a little segment where the the people's ribs are hurting, guys. The Rock is talking with McMahon, talking about how, how he's hurting. And then we go into match number two on the night, which is the Headbangers taking on the Oddities. And I've learned a few things while watching this match, okay? <laughs> number one is... This is crazy. The Oddities theme song, the ICP version is so much better than the music they put yeah. on. Oh, this is... Yeah. And number two, I never realized that John Tenta was Golga. You Really? Was Golga? I, you didn't realize? A Golga, yeah. Moves. I mean, you, once you realize it, every move, every every bit of body language, you're like, "Oh my god, this is so obvious." And you know why? I think I never realized it. Too busy looking at the South Park now. He he's lost so much weight that Triple H put it on. <laughs> Could be. Could be. No, no, he moves so great. I thought, and I never realized that. I don't know what it was, or or maybe just. You know, the birth of the Internet, I wasn't visiting the right sites or maybe I learned it and I just forgot about it because really the run as Golgo, nothing really. I mean, but he's, nothing came of it, really. He looks in great shape. He's wrestling well. Like he could you could have put him somewhere else. He deserved better than that Golga gimmick. Why not bring him in with boss man? Yeah. Or have him replace HBK. Yeah. God, that'd be interesting. Commissioner Tenta. Commissioner Quake. <laughs> Commissioner Quake. Commissioner Quake. 
you know, it, it would have been like, um, kind of like, uh, commissioner Kane. Was that what it was? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, in the suit dressed up and stuff like that. It just would have been a different dynamic. Yeah. I never realized that. It would though. be interesting if you go back to think about, okay, so we see, you know, John Tenta as, under the mask in the Golga character. This is 98. And, uh, just a few years later, we have that WrestleMania gimmick battle Royal and he is back in his earthquake gear do you remember if he had put the weight back on? I remember he was in that typical red-black singlet for the earthquake from the natural disasters run, not the uh, the pale blue or the you know the baby blue from his Canadian earthquake run. I don't remember his weight, but I remember thinking out of everyone in that match as a gimmick, he was one of the ones that was actually doing well and could still move. In Absolutely. There. All right, so why don't we uh, go ahead and talk about this five-star classic? <laughs> I don't know if five-star classic, but we did get to see some action starting with Kurgan in the ring with Mosh after they pretty much scuffle back and forth in the corner. Mosh climbs off uh, up to the second rope, jumps off, and Kurgan catches him for a sidewalk slam to the canvas. Eventually, Thrasher tags in. Kurgan catches him for a side suplex slam. Kurgan ends up uh, setting up both of the headbangers in the corner as they try to double team on Kurgan. Kurgan is able to essentially overcome and does a double avalanche splash in the corner onto both headbangers. Kurgan does uh, tag in Golga and Golga then follows with an avalanche splash into the corner. Golga uh, hip tosses Thrasher and then drops a big elbow after bouncing off of the ropes for a two-count pinfall attempt from Tin White. Kurgan tags back in and misses this very strange, awkward-looking splash off of the second rope, and the headbangers double-team and do a front double-team front suplex onto Kurgan. Headbangers continue to double-team back and forth on Kurgan, trying to choke him over the top rope. We see Kurgan do a back body drop and eventually does a clothesline to Mosh. And then we get a double tag for both teams. So Golga with the hot tag. And he is now essentially fighting off both men. We see Golga, who is John Tenta, do a successful drop kick, a decent looking drop kick to Mosh of the Headbangers. Golga sets up for what we would refer to as the earthquake vertical splash as earthquake bounces off the second rope and it goes for the leap. There was a blind tag to, uh, to Mosh and Mosh ends up doing what is basically like a Fez press type of uh, cross body from the top or from the, yeah, from the top rope across the ring onto Golga and ends up pinning Golga for the one, two, three victory for the headbangers. This came up a lot more when we started the your house series of WWF hiring people and then realizing they can't work as well as they used to. This is a situation where they just can't work gold or not Golga uh, Kurgan can't work and giant Silva can't work at all, but now you're stuck with them. Why? When you have John Tenta who we've already he said great things about him and his work at the time. Why is Kurgan working the majority of the match? Like, if you want to train someone, pay-per-view is probably not the best time to do it. You know, a house show run, something like that. Open up some training school. Do it there. 
he doesn't even know how to do the hot tag right. Like that should have been building up for a hot tag, and it's just like, oh hey, here's my hand. Let me let me tag in. Like honestly, this is one of the worst matches we've watched in this series. If we were doing a a, a bottom five, there would be discussion tonight to put it down there. However, however, it should be expected from me if you've listened to previous shows. I did think Luna looked fantastic this evening. I think the most noteworthy thing from this match is at the end with the fan pushes the headbangers. Oh, and they almost throw blows. Yeah. My my question to the educator, because I know you like to touch wrestlers when they come close to you, is was that the similar reaction that the Sultan gave you? <laughs> I was convinced the Sultan was ready to murder me for, you know, patting him on the back <laughs> as he walked by to the ring. Um, I really wish Bob Backlund was there to be intermediary between myself and the Sultan. Um, I, I was fearful for my life, without a doubt. I, I wanted to no-sold it, but there was a puddle of fluid underneath me as a result of uh, Rikishi really wanting to just knock me out. Are you sure it wasn't Bruce Hart spilling his soda? <laughs> Bruce Hart's such a mark for himself. Our penultimate episode has a lot of callbacks for the listeners that have listened on this entire journey. So we appreciate you. So following that up, we get WWF.com, uh, Kevin Kelly with Tom Pritchard, and they're just kind of running down the buzz about the Buried Alive match on the interwebs. And then we get another, like, it, a it's almost like a behind the scenes, like almost like an office style of filming Vince throughout the night. And I just love this one because Briscoe offers to get Vince coffee. It's just one of the funniest <laughs> things really getting over the stooges. I, I just really, I really did enjoy this, you know, quick minute that it was. We move on to match number three on the night, which is Owen Hart taking on Steve Blackman. Um, before the match though, we do get a video of uh, the blue blazer attacking Blackman as part of the feud. Um, do you guys know who was playing the Blue Blazer when Owen was out there? Did they have someone specific, or was it like a retribution style where they're just picking people that are there to put them in the costume and keep people guessing or try to throw them off the scent that it's Owen? It's it's hard to try to say what the final payoff for this was supposed to be. It's my understanding, and but either of you can interject. The reason for the Blue Blazer gimmick returning is because Owen decided or nixed an idea of a feud that he was going to have with Jeff Jarrett, where apparently he was going to be having an affair with, um, with his manager. And um, he just didn't want to be involved with setting up that kind of tone where you know he's a family man he's got kids you know even though his work life you know is is a fictional thing and so on just having um any kind of like suggestive storyline where he was having an affair with deborah mcmichael behind behind jeff jarrett's back it, it does that sound correct gentlemen like the the, the he because he nixed that idea there just they decided to do this other the, to reprise the blue blazer gimmick um i don't know what 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 the payoff was for this i re do remember at one point that during one of the supposed okay owen hart is wrestling a match and it may have been at survivor series or or a, a raw or a sunday night heat 
there was actually an African-American gentleman who was in the Blue Blazer getup. And it's my understanding that was probably Coco Beware, his former tag top partner from High Energy. Um, I don't know if the intent was they were just going to just phase random people in and out uh, from this. And he was going to continue to do the alter ego as needed. What would have come of this had the accident not happened? I guess we are all aware that he was supposed to have won the Intercontinental Championship that night from the Godfather. And then what would have come of this? The, whether or not they convinced him to do the angle with Jarrett, who knows? Um, it is what it is. It's an unfortunate, I guess, stain on uh, on the business that them bringing back this character led to the events of Owen Hart's death. I mean, I thought because the the affair angle was after Canadian country was formed, which it, they're not quite formed yet. They're close, but not quite yet for this one. I thought the idea was just like, you know, Batman and Bruce Wayne in the same place. Owen Hart and Blue Blazer are in the same place. Clearly, I can't be the Blue Blazer. Look, he's right here next to me. But then it gives him an excuse to do heelish acts as the Blazer and then blow it off and have an excuse for it. I thought that was all it was at the time. Like, oh, I can just do, you know, crazy heel, honestly, kind of Owen Prankish stuff in a way and play it off as it's some other guy when really it's him. Yeah. So, um, so educator, uh, why don't you go ahead and break this down? And what did you think of what I'm going to consider a match of the night um, contender? It's one of the better matches on the card. I hated the ending of this match. Yeah, I'm just saying the entire match. I, like I the, just the action is really good, and you could see it's funny because we did bring up how Blackman trained in like Stampede Wrestling came up in that, and you can see the chemistry that him and Owen have in this match. I just I, I'm so frustrated with how the ending of the match was, and again, I realize there doesn't need to be a, a, a clean win, pinfall, submission, whatever. But just to finish the match the way it did where, you know, Owen escapes and just walks out of the ring and takes a count out loss. It's just it's to me, it was just not not a great finish to the match. So for the match itself, we a huge, huge pop from the lot, you know, the Canadian crowd for Owen Hart's music and his entrance in the start of the match. We see Owen Hart essentially attack Blackman as he's just getting into the ring the attack got garnered another huge pop from the fans. We hear loud Owen Hart chants or Owen chants from the crowd regularly throughout the match. Steve Blackman does a back body drop and a roundhouse kick onto Owen Hart near the beginning of the match. Blackman hits a snap suplex, a backbreaker over his knee, and then attempts to do a bow and arrow submission onto Owen Hart. Owen Hart hits uh, the first of two Enziguri kicks uh, in this match. And what was unique about this, and commentary even picked up on it, Steve Blackman starts to grab one particular leg, and nonchalantly, Owen, in a method to supposedly escape the attempt, he feeds Blackman the other leg so that he can then do the roundhouse with the leg that Blackman had originally grabbed. So commentary perhaps is covering for 
you know, a botch or a mistake that Blackman was making, but the way they covered for it, you know, just the psychology of Owen feeding him the other leg so that then he would fall into, you know, be the ability to do the move. It was a really, really good cover on commentary's part. We see Owen hit a gut wrench suplex uh, onto Steve Blackman for a two count. Steve Blackman recovers, hits a standing vertical suplex, and then bounces off the ropes and does a corkscrew-like elbow, only to get a two-count from referee Mike Kyoto. We see Blackman hitting a baseball slide onto Owen, who was outside of the ring, trying to gather him himself after the elbow drop on the floor. Owen hits a reverse atomic drop and then follows up with a spinning heel kick onto Blackman. We get a two-count attempt from Owen. We see a standing suplex and then an elbow off the top rope for Owen onto Blackman for an extremely long two count. And the crowd was really on their feet kind of counting. And then we had a long two count after that big elbow off the top rope. We see Owen hitting a reverse cross body after being peeled into the corner off the second rope onto Blackman. And then Blackman was able to kind of roll through that and try a pinfall attempt on Owen for a two count. Owen hits his second Inziguri kick of the of the night and then behind the ref's back removes the top corner turnbuckle pad, exposing the steel bolt behind. Owen attempts to Irish whip Steve Blackman into that same exposed corner, but Blackman reverses the Irish whip, causing Owen to smash sternum first into that exposed turnbuckle, very similar to his uh, older brother Brett selling a turnbuckle uh, posting. Blackman puts on a sleeper hole to Owen and eventually Owen is able to maneuver out of the sleeper and set up and actually do his uh, version of the dragon sleeper, which then commentary alluded to the fact that, oh, wow, that's a move that's very common from the blue blazer. Look at the similarities and so on. We see Owen hitting a DDT and then Owen climbs to the top rope to attempt to do a top rope drop kick. But Blackman kind of somewhat sidesteps and catches Owen's legs. And he does a very ugly looking sharpshooter. This is Steve Blackman doing a sharpshooter onto Owen, where he kind of st- he stepped through with one leg, but then crossed Owen's feet on the opposite side of his body. So his leg wasn't matching up with where his arms would be hooking up to do the sharpshooter. But Blackman does the best he can to still kind of lean back on that sharpshooter itself. Eventually, Owen is able to escape that sharpshooter attempt from Blackman, and he scurries out of the ring and essentially kind of walks to the dressing room and you know kind of shakes his hand back like, forget this, I'm out of here. And Owen Hart takes a count-out loss, and Blackman wins. I, I just don't understand where we go with this ending. I don't understand it. No one looks good coming out of this ending. And then we follow that up with Vince visiting Mankind's office, which is underneath some, it looks like some stairs. It's like a little boiler room. It's Harry Potter's house. Um, I really do like these little little Vince segments, but I I think it feels more like how a Raw was structured than what a pay-per-view should be. Right, right. Well, I mean, they're doing the best they can to try to, like, continue the storyline of Foley not holding the rock accountable and losing the title to him. If he can't compete in the match later in the night, interesting dynamic that we see them continuing to discuss, you know, throughout the night. And at one point we see Vince sitting on the floor, leaning against the wall. 
eventually across from Mick Foley. That was honestly my favorite part of it. And I, I got to imagine Vince was just getting a kick out of it, too. Like, he was probably just having fun with this whole thing. Yeah, and then we follow that up with match number four on the night, which is the Job Squad, which is Al Snow, Two Cold Scorpio, and Bob Holly taking on the Brood, which, of course, is Edge and Christian and Gangrel. And, guys, this match features what I have to say is my favorite move I have seen on an in-your-house pay-per-view so far. What move is that? That would be the two cold Scorpio moonsault into lake drop at the end. That would be him drop. What he referred to it as is him dropping the bomb. It is unbelievable. I rewound it and watched it like 10 times. Like I was just amazed. Like how does he not like murder the person? (laughs) He used to do that. And then there was another leg drop variant that was called the tumbleweed where he would do a corkscrew leg drop where he would do a backflip into a half gainer and then would do a sit out leg drop kind of basically like imagine him standing for a moonsault but then he twists around and does a harlem hangover out of it and it's called the tumbleweed it was really cool it's insane yeah i mean i i saw that and i was like holy cow like that is it's something that i haven't seen anyone else ever do like we talk about we talked about the takamishinoku you know, die right. or he would jump leap up, the ropes, get yeah. leverage and then, and then leap. And this is another move that I haven't seen anyone else do. I remember when Scorpio debuted WCW and just how my mind was floored him doing the, the four fifty off the top rope. And just was like how this guy is not a license to print money is beyond me. And the fact that he just essentially got saddled mid card, I guess, you know, his interview was kind of weak but it's just saddled mid-card and then just mid-card tag team. I and mean, he was a tag champion with Bagwell briefly. But how they didn't do more with him in WCW blows my mind. I think he was best capitalized on by Paul Heyman in ECW. Oh, for sure. What an underrated guy that should be a Hall of Famer just for the innovation he brought to United States wrestling. Yeah, just, you know, it's unbelievable. Like, uh, it's... I, I, He's one of those people when you when you're looking at how did they not become a bigger star, he's kind of one of them too, like you said. Um whether that's because of the promo, what they thought his character, I mean his in-ring style is just unbelievable. I mean, what a just a, a great wrestler. So, uh but, but what did you guys think of this uh six man? Educator, you you're the six man guy. Yeah, you know. I mean, you love the six man tag. Love me the six man cuz it gives lots of different combinations to to look at through the match. Unfortunately, I did, you know, kind of start seeing the pacing of this match where it was like one guy tagged in, he got three or four moves, he tagged out, and then the new guy coming in now is on the defense. He takes the first guy that had been harmed, takes three or four moves, then he tags out. I kind of saw that as kind of like the the pattern throughout the match. Um, Huge fan of the finish. I, my goodness, I am such a, a, a huge fan now of Christian Cage's work as just as the Christian character, the gothic character, as a part of the brood before, um, before Edge and Christian separated out and just became a tag team. I loved the presentation of Christian, his character work uh, is so good. So good. I, I think like you're saying the match, it's a fun match. It does come a little paint by numbers. This should have been the opener. This would have been a real fun hot opener, get everyone excited for the night. 
because it's not bad at all. There's a lot of, it's just fun. There's a lot of stuff. I'm like, that was cool. That was cool. That was good. Could I have predicted the ending? Could I have, you know, guess moves coming? Sure. But for an opener, let's all get on the same page. Let's get excited for a night of wrestling. And, you know, it's, it's still not bad where it is on the card. I just think it could have been better there. I had a thought though, well, because, uh, Last time we saw Christian was when he won the light heavyweight title. Why not put Scorpio in the light heavyweight division? And I know, I know, I can hear it now. He's too big. I would show you Brian Christopher and Scott Putzke for the too big argument, as they were considered light heavyweights. Just make up a weight. Say he's that weight. I, um, Scott Putzke, he was absolutely jacked, ripped to the gills, but he was shorter and he was thinner, even though he was jacked, ripped to the gills. I'm not saying like Nunzio in terms of size or small, but Putzky was smaller. But absolutely, Brian Christopher, he in 97 feuding with Taka Michinoku before he became the tag team with too much. Dude was huge, like yeah. really, really thick and definitely on the gas. Yeah, but I mean, you could you could just lie and throw Scorpio in there say he counts for the light heavyweight weight limit and just let him go nuts so uh why don't you go ahead and uh, break this one down all right towards the beginning of the match we see bob holly with a power slam on edge and then bob holly follows through with a falcon arrow into a slam we see edge recover and do an electric chair into a face buster on the bob holly Bob Holly ends up catching Christian as Christian was tagged in and gives a double arm suplex into a power bomb onto Christian. Scorpio tags into the match and hits the like essentially Harlem hangover leg drop, but off of the second rope onto Christian and ends up getting a, uh, a two count from referee Jimmy Corderas. Al Snow tags in and hits a suplex to Christian after delivering a pretty stiff looking clothesline. Now Gangrel in the match, he gets suplexed into a bridge by Al Snow, and Al Snow holds it and uh, uh, gets a two count from the referee. Uh, Al Snow hits a wheelbarrow suplex onto Gangrel for another pin attempt for a two count. We see Gangrel hitting a DDT to Al Snow, and then all three brood members essentially come in and start triple teaming Al Snow and working on Al Snow in the corner. The commentary team I found was it was interesting how they were starting to put over how any combination of two of the three brood members could be a threat to the tag titles. So they're kind of implying or hinting upon like a, maybe a free bird combination. Uh, maybe that could have happened. Unfortunately, it never really did. But interesting how they're saying, yeah, any combination of the brood, they could be a serious threat to the tag titles. We see Edge with uh, a wear down chin lock on Al Snow, kind of through the midway point of the match, trying to get the crowd uh, back into the match itself. We see Al Snow hitting an enziguri to the face of Edge, as opposed to what we're commonly usually seeing a, a wrestler boot the back of the neck or back of the skull. This time it's an enziguri to the face. Al Snow catches Edge with a sit out spine buster bomb. And after that spine buster bomb, we essentially see a six man schmaz in the ring where all the characters are just, or all the, the wrestlers are essentially going back and forth. 
We see Scorpio and Christian actually are supposed to be the legal men in the match as this all-out brawl is taking place. We see eventually Al Snow uh, bring the mannequin head into the ring, and he hits Christian with the mannequin head. Scorpio, after Christian was hit, climbs to the top rope, and Treats alluded to this earlier. He does the backflip leg drop or drops the bomb, so to speak, onto Christian, attempts for a pinfall count only for Edge to do a run-in to make the save to break up the count. Edge sets up a dive over the top rope where he uses Gangrel's body as like a footstep and you know jumps off of Gangrel's body and hurls himself over the top rope onto Bob Holly and Al Snow to essentially take out those two men from the match itself. Back into the ring, uh, Christian now has recovered from the big leg drop, dropping the bomb from Scorpio and is able to hook Scorpio's arms and hit what we eventually called the kill switch. Eventually, it first was called the unprettier DDT onto Scorpio for the big one, two, three victory for the brood. You know, give credit to Edge and Christian because they're the rookies in the match by far and hung with everyone here. Like, everyone looked good. I was impressed with all of it. Um, I, I already said what I thought for where the match should have been, how fun it was. I, I just really enjoyed this match. When I saw everyone come out, I was like, oh, this is going to suck. And not at all. Very pleasantly surprised. Good fun match. So we follow up that beautiful moonsault leg drop by Two Cold Scorpio with uh, Vincent Mankind still talking. Once again, they they're, they're, Vince is the center of everything um, during this. Like I said, it just kind of felt like a raw in that aspect, how they kept checking in there. Uh, but we go to match number five on the card, which is Jeff Jarrett with Deborah taking on Goldust in a striptease match. Um, so, yeah, what did you guys think of the striptease match? Uh, I'm going to defer to Hellions on this one and make the hot tag to him. Oh, God. Um, just I, I really wasn't a fan of the match. The only thing that was entertaining was the 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 uh the reversal of fortune with Shawn Michaels involvement with his commissioner role. All right, so this is a this is a Kevin Hellion special breaking down the match. Is this our new running segment? It is today. <laughs> it did that night. All right, Jeff Jarrett with Deborah versus Gold Dust. And these are going from my notes exactly, which for this match is actually an entire page. Wait, wait, is this the one match you took notes on? No, I take notes on every match. Yeah, sure you reason, did. These ones are more extensive. Sure you did. <laughs> okay, so Jeff Jarrett with Deborah versus Gold Dust. Strip tease match. This pop is for Deborah, not Jeff Jarrett. Quote from Lawler Is that camera loaded with film? Which I just thought was funny in 2020 to be worried about, you know, you got enough film for the camera. Fans are super into this. They want skin. Look at all of the gold paint getting on Jeff Jarrett's arms. Classic crowd psychology with a twist. Ref distracted by Deborah. Gold Dust has three, but no ref. Multiple two counts. Deborah in, distracting Goldust. Goldust turns her away. Deborah rocks Goldust with the guitar. Jeff Jarrett getting counted. Jeff Jarrett back in. The stroke, but not called that yet. Three count. Goldust must strip. 
Shawn Michaels, the new commissioner, comes out. Shawn plays it up and overturns the match. Goldust wins by DQ. Deborah plays to the crowd. Shawn takes out Monty. Jeff Jarrett, for some reason, is now watching from the back. Huge difference between Deborah and Sable. Deborah is having fun. Oh, the bra too? No, Blue Blazer comes out to cover Deborah. <laughs> Can I ask a question, Kevin? What was that? Kevin, let me ask you a question. For someone that has blogged, you've been an English major in creative writing. Yep, have a degree. You yep. have a degree. Um, your notes are very interesting. <laughs> they're not full sentences. I mean, they're notes. Nope. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're notes. Usually, it's just notes. You know, educator goes off, and I come in with you know a alternate take or a thing I notice or a you know stupid dad joke or whatever. Usually, I don't need extensive notes to break down the match. I just love skin to win. Jeff Jarrett count. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> now, I will say, like we were saying about Sable beforehand and the difference, Tepper's totally into this. She's loving it. She's into the spotlight. She's playing it up and all. And it, you feel better watching it than we felt watching that Sable one. No, absolutely. Yeah, you when 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 it's when there is consent involved, it's it's more fun. As weird as that sounds, so it's my PSA for the day, folks. That and that will be the back of the new house show T-shirt coming soon. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to point out is because you brought it up, Jeff Jarrett backstage at a monitor watching. Now they they cut to him, I think, twice or or yep. three times. Uh, the last time, the camera pans out a little, and you see a bunch of wrestlers watching, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you see um, Mike Chioda, you see The Rock, and you see Mankind standing next to each other. See, the idea is that Deborah's body is such a thing to behold that even faces and heels can join together in this moment of harmony, much like in World War II when both the Allies and the Axis powers cease fire on Christmas Day. The only reason I bring it up is because currently Vince is meeting with mankind. And the only reason I and the only reason I bring that up is because after the Jeff Jarrett Blue Blazer thing with Deborah gets the Blue Blazer um, robe and, and walks off is Vince leaves Mankind's office and then he's walking into the hallway and I sent this photo to you guys. In the <laughs> distance of the hallway is the Rock and Mankind. Maybe it's Owen Hart as Mankind, much like it was Owen Hart as Blue Blazer, but trying to pretend it wasn't. Are we in the Hart multiverse? We are now. <laughs> yeah, there was just little things that, that stuck out to me a lot of seeing the rock and mankind backstage talking when they are your title match, which is technically your co-main event of the evening. So, um, so the, yeah, that was, that was fun. And then we followed that up guys with a WWF attitude cologne commercial. Um, do you guys remember the WWF attitude cologne or do you remember the WCW nitro cologne? Do you remember any of these wrestling colognes and if they smelled awesome or terrible? Have no recollection whatsoever. I remember the goofy commercial for it, but not the actual fragrance itself and whether or not it was successful. I'm guessing probably not too successful as we didn't really hear much of it um, at all on, on TV. I mean, based on this 
commercial, I'm guessing the WWF one smelled like scat. But um, I never, I never bought the WWF or the WCW one because I would always get so much cologne as birthday or Christmas presents. I never had to go and buy my own. Well, so I went on eBay, guys. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I did not see this coming. No, I did not buy it. I did not buy it. Um, so I went on eBay and I searched WWF cologne, and currently there is. The 1998 Steve Austin Venom Cologne. Uh, you can buy it for $200 for the Are bottle. You, I hope that's sealed. Uh, no, it's open. And it says, but it, you, but you know what, though? Almost full bottle. <laughs> Do you think, like, WWF Attitude was Axe Body Spray before Axe Body Spray? Yes. It probably was. Or, or it was, like, Stacker 2. Remember the stacker? Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I think on that note, why don't we uh, take a little break? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. You take a pinch of Karsushi mixed with a dash of McFooley. Mass library is truly just a cricket in disguise. You swirl in some fake razor. Dad chokes always are the chaser. But you learn quickly from the educator that he has those figure supplies. You can smell like a sailor. Long John Maddie, he has the layers. Wrestling buddies smell like a player with the pocket of the crumble eyes. Smell like the house show. Men wrestling with a little bit of retro. Random words, no meaning. Random phrases, hit the outro. Smell like a champion with the house show cologne presented by the Retro Network. To order it, send $20 inside a library book and Kevin Hallions will find it eventually. Besides that, who knows? Since the beginning of April, since the dawn of the pandemic, Three men took on the challenge of covering every in-your-house pay-per-view. Well, now they have climbed that mountain. They have conquered every challenge set before them. So the three men will venture outside of their house for the first time since the start of their self-imposed quarantine. From the last 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 weeks they have become the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. But the outside world has changed. As the world around them grows darker and gets spookier, there is a new challenge the house show must face. So join Maddie Treats, the masked library Kevin Hellions, and the Educator of Excellence as they begin to cover 
WCW's Halloween Havoc. The Haunted House Show, starting October 1st, on a podcast channel near you. Enter at your own risk. All right, and we're back, and we're going into match number six on the card, which is the New Age Outlaws taking on the big boss man, Ken Shamrock, with Commissioner HBK. Um, what did you guys uh, think of this match? Um, what, A thing that stands out for me, and at least commentary covered for it later, is that during the boss man and Shamrock's entrance, you can visibly see the boss man carrying the hardcore title that he now has that he had just defeated fully for a couple weeks prior, maybe just this past Monday prior to the pay-per-view. They announced Shamrock as the Intercontinental Champion, but they did not, uh, Howard Finkel did not actually announce boss man as the hardcore champion. I'm wondering if they were still debating on that being just like a trophy title or if it was actually going to become a regularly defended thing and a, a sanctioned title in the WWF at the time. Later on in the match, they um, commentary did allude to the fact that how you know both men could be double champions, Bossman being hardcore and tag, and then Shamrock being tag and intercontinental champion. Had this actually happened... Had the boss man and Shamrock won the tag titles that night. Do you guys ever recall where there was a set of tag team champions who also each individually had a singles title? I don't believe the Hardys were tag champions. I think at one point Jeff was light heavyweight champion and Matt was European champion at the same time or there was a little bit of overlap but i don't think together they were also tag champions i know there has been a bunch of times where um the world champion the singles world champion was also half of the tag champions as well but i don't remember a time and and you guys help me out where both members of the tag team champions also had a singles title as well um one night for dudes with attitude and uh two man power trip i don't know how long it lasted but i know they had world ic and tag for austin wow. and hunter wow i can't believe i completely blanked out on that good call well done um i think you missed out on them because you know, Hunter had a, a a quad injury. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Hunter <laughs> had a quad injury that he hurt himself with. And uh, did he finish the match though? Yes. No. Okay. Good. Good. It's not like you just talked about it on the run-in on Monday. But when that injury happened, was he still Intercontinental Champion? I don't believe he was. I think he had lost. Yeah, I think he had already lost the title at that point. You're right. They did have the tag title because they won them from Taker and Kane. That I do remember. I think the I think the weird thing is when you are talking about tag team 
champions and holding titles. These are both secondary titles. Right. And you usually assume that it's going to be the world champion teaming up with like the IC champion or the you know United States champion, whatever right. it is, to win the, the tag titles. But in this case, it would have been your IC champion in hardcore title. Which would have been like a third tier low card championship. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, there was, did, was there ever, um, did X Pac ever have like the European title with a tag title or anything like no, that? No. I mean, that would no. be the only other title I'm thinking of yeah. in this I, era. Hard to believe. X Pac's tag title reigns, um, he had one with Kane. And then he had, then the one, two, as the one, two, three kid, he had his run with, um, Bob Holly, a very short reign. I think they lost the titles the next night to Smoking Guns, Rumble 96, the day after or whatever. Uh, or I'm sorry, Rumble 95. And then he had a short, what, two-week run with Marty Jannetty, had defeated the Quebecers and won the tag titles as well. But at, at both of those runs, though, there weren't any additional titles besides the Intercontinental or World. But you're right. Like, two secondary is odd. Right. Even I was trying to even think like when a U.S. title got brought in and stuff. Two secondaries is really weird to do it. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, besides that, though, what did you actually think of the match? There's a significant reversal of what we have been talking about for the past few New Age Outlaw pay-per-view matches where it seemed like Billy Gunn was working the majority of the match and Road Dog was essentially out you know, on the corner waiting for the hot tag. This was a complete reversal where Road Dog was essentially working probably 85-90% of the match, and then Billy Gunn just got some of the basic stuff in a, in a hot tag in towards the back end of the match. Yeah, I, I was surprised by how long Road Dog was in there. Um, I kind of got issues with one person's performance. I don't know if Educator's going to you know, say the same thing uh, for a breakdown. Um, overall, I liked it, but... Uh, yeah, I got like two issues with the match. All right. Well, we see really for me when I was reviewing this match, I didn't really see much of significant note for the first three to four minutes other than just Boss Man and Shamrock tagging in and out, working over Road Dog. Um, eventually, Boss Man sends Road Dog into the corner and tries to follow through with an avalanche splash, is successful in nailing the Road Dog with it. Shamrock tags in, continues to work on the road dog until he tags back out again for boss man to come in and charges road dog with a leg over the, his t- body as his body is prone over the ropes um, and does that sit out on top of road dog's body who's draped over the second rope. Shamrock picks up road dog and does essentially a standing power slam to road dog. We see Shawn Michaels uh, at ringside essentially poking and prodding at Road Dog, and he's telling the referee, I'm just poking and checking him to see if he's still alive, kind of just being that annoying pain-in-the-butt child poking and prodding throughout the match. We continue to see tag, it, tag outs and reversals with Boss Man and Shamrock continuing to wear down the Road Dog. Shawn Michaels, we see, gets a few shots in on the Road Dog on the floor near the corner. At one point, Shawn Michaels ends up kissing Road Dog on the forehead or on his cheek in the match to kind of mock the situation that the Road Dog is in. 
We see Shamrock send the road dog into the corner to follow up with um, basically trying to go in for a tackle, but road dog ends up responding by doing a big boot to Shamrock's face. And eventually road dog is able to crawl over and finally get the hot tag to Billy Gunn. Billy Gunn comes in. He does a drop kick to the boss man. He catches Shamrock, who's trying to do basically a Frankensteiner, but, uh, you know, Billy Gunn catches him and drops him essentially for a power bomb. We have a pinfall attempt that is a made, and we see Shawn Michaels pull the referee out of the ring and kind of use his clout as being the commissioner, telling the referee he needs to do a better job. While the referee is out of the ring dealing with Shawn Michaels, who had just dragged him out, the boss man grabs his billy club and essentially hits uh, Mr. Uh, Billy Gunn with the nightstick. We see Shamrock roll over and attempt to do a pinfall account, uh, attempt onto um, Billy Gunn, but Tim White, by the time he gets back into the ring, it ends up being a very long two count. We see a weird spot to finish the match where uh, Billy Gunn tries to do a suplex to Ken Shamrock. He, he's very, very close to the ropes. It seems to me that they were attempting to do the Ultimate Warrior, Rick Rude, WrestleMania Five suplex where Bobby Heenan grabbed the Warrior's legs, causing Rude to fall over onto the Warrior for kind of like a crossbody. They tried to do that, and just the positioning of it resulted in what looked like to be a successful crossbody by Shamrock, but somehow Billy Gunn rolls through it anyway, and with Michael's back turned to the to the crowd and not paying attention, um, there is an awkward roll through Cradle, and Shamrock gets pinned by Billy Gunn for the 1-2-3 victory. You mentioned how long it takes for the beginning match to get going. Road Dog finally making the hot tag. The Road Dog beatdown building up for the hot tag takes way too long. They could have shaved quite a few minutes off of this match and still had, and honestly, probably had a better match. Like, it just takes way too long. You kind of zone out. It gets boring after a while. But part of it, I think, is when Ken Shamrock's in the ring about halfway through this, he runs out of moves. He just starts looking lost and doesn't know what to do. So he just does the same round of moves he just did to Road Dog all over again. Because you can't come up with anything new or fresh to do because this whole spot's taken way too long. Um, you know, we Ken Shamrock's been all right so far, but he is still new when he's far from perfect here. Bossman looks good coming in, the outlaws are outlaws. Um, but honestly, it just it ends up being such a it's such a nothing match, and everyone in there could have done better. Could have had a better match overall. Yeah, it's the second longest match on the card. Also, Is it too, really? yeah, it's it's only second to the Buried Alive match. But I think the upcoming match, the co-main event here, um, feels longer because of the the beginning, the shenanigans in the beginning of it. But yeah. I do want to point out that the New Age Outlaws actually wrestle on Sunday Night Heat as well. You would think the match would be shorter then. Yeah, well, the Sunday Night Heat match is only two minutes. So. No. But anyways, if you ordered this pay-per-view on cable, <laughs> you can send that cable bell in and get a WWF Attitude Bandana. 
Now, do I have to wear that bandana on my head, um, wrap it around my arm or something as a scarf, or can I wear it over my face to stop the spread of COVID? Uh, well, currently you can stop the spread of COVID, but at the time you could wear it however you want. Okay. So we follow that up with a video kind of showing the rocks rise and his heel turn at the survivor series. Um, and then we get match number seven, which is our co-main event, which is weird because it is the title match, but, um, it is mankind taking on the rock. Um, so at the survivor series, the rock turns heel or technically did the rock ever turn face during this? He was cheered. I wouldn't say he did the acts that a face would do, but he was certainly over in a positive way. Because as I'm watching this, I mean, the fans clearly love The Rock and what he's doing. Everyone loves the old uh, Bruce Pritchard talking about The Rock, and they say, oh, he's fans, but he's ice cream is the line that everyone <laughs> everyone talks about. And that's why the fans are eating it up is. Should they have not cited The Rock as the corporate champion? Should The Rock have been a face going up against McMahon instead of being with McMahon is my question to you guys. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I think they really. I mean, who else, though, in that position would you have? Yeah. I mean, you could have went with Mankind as that. But they had already treaded that with the the dude love character back in back in the spring, so are we going to dust that off with a different version or incarnation of Foley and try to do that again? Um, you know, th- they wanted to do something new and they were trying to create, you know, a, a mega heel in the company. You know, you've got the Undertaker who is now back with Paul Bearer and turned to the dark side. Kane has kind of sort of essentially turned face as a result of that interaction. So there's kind of like, you know, a, a new spot to open up for like the number two heel in the company and, you know, or number three, if you'd want to consider McMahon being the first, you know, bigger heel that's starting to, as this is continuing to snowball with that, uh, I, I just, they're just trying something new. You know, they did the whole, faction thing you know he was a heel in the faction a member of the the nation who then you know takes over and and ousts the leader farouk and once they decided to end that and go with a new direction of now he's a singles guy on his own but he's still a heel now they want to overwhelmingly convince everyone yep he's not a guy to be cheered for uh we're putting him with vince mcmahon and the uh corporation I mean, honestly, putting Rock with the corporation gives him a sense of legitimacy, too, that he deserves to be in that world title picture, that he is a credible threat to Austin. If Rock wins that title, say, Survivor Series on his own, he's seen as, oh, he's an interim champ. We'll probably lose it in a month or so. And maybe in a couple of years from now, they'll give him another chance with the title. Put him with corporation. You're like, oh, I see what Mania is going to be. And I'm excited. So, of course, before the match, there's a ton of shenanigans and. To be honest, it wasn't like the shenanigans at Over the Edge. This just dragged on and on. And it really didn't have, um, it didn't pull me in. I wasn't really into this. I thought the action of the match was good. 
Uh, but besides that, though, this match didn't hit for me. Uh, Educator, why don't you uh, break it down and give us your thoughts? All righty, everyone, buckle your chin straps and let's get <laughs> ready for this ride because, boy, it was a, a pretty decent match to take place between the two men. After the shenanigans of McMahon's involvement in the match with Shane also there at ringside, we see Rock finally attack Mankind from behind. A bunch of punches, kicks, and stomps just to essentially get the match going here. Eventually, both men out, end up outside of the ring. Uh, Mick Foley ends up throwing Rock into the ring steps, picks up those ring steps, the top half, uh, lifts them up over his head and drops them down over the Rock's body. We see Foley clothesline the Rock and rams his head into the steps again and then eventually the announce table. McMahon gets on the microphone uh, ordering the ref to uh, you know, disqualify Mick Foley for any particular reason that would, you know, essentially be shadiness of the rules. So he's kind of like lending his authority in there, instructing the ref on how to do his job. We see the rock hitting uh, clothesline onto Foley uh, as a result of Mick Foley being distracted from McMahon being on the microphone. Rock is choking mankind on the floor with a set of camera cables and the Rock eventually front suplexes McFoley onto the floor itself outside the ring. Foley ends up sidestepping a charging Rock to send Rock over the top rope onto the floor when they eventually had ended up back into the ring. Foley tries to set up for an elbow drop, not from running the ring apron, but actually he climbs to the second turnbuckle as if he's going to dive off of the second turnbuckle towards the Rock on the floor. We end up having a, a Shane McMahon distraction where Shane ends up grabbing one of Foley's legs to prevent him from leaping off. And then the rock recovers and kind of does like an arm whip or an arm drag, essentially being the equivalent of Mick Foley being like slammed from the second turnbuckle onto the floor itself. It was kind of like a very ugly looking drop for Foley. I'm sure it was very painful for him to go through that. So the rock has yanked Mick Foley off the turnbuckle onto the floor. Rock eventually picks up Foley and they begin to brawl back and forth as the rock, uh, decides to do his own commentary by taking Michael Cole's headset off and begins wearing it and does his own commentary through uh, the next segment of the match itself. Eventually, Foley brawls with The Rock, causing Rock to get rid of his headset. They are now continuously brawling back and forth. At one point, The Rock is capable or successful of DDTing McFoley onto a chair that was found on the uh, in the floor area where they were fighting. Rock gets a very, very long two count after throwing Foley back into the ring after that DDT onto the chair. Not a successful pinfall attempt count, but counted by Mike Chioda. Rock body slams Foley in the middle of the ring, and the crowd knows what to expect as he sets up for the people's elbow. He yanks off his elbow pad, hits the ropes, does the people's elbow, and gets a two count from referee Mike Chioda. Uh, Foley ends up hitting a swinging neck breaker after he was Irish whipped into the ropes and the rock telegraphed a back body dropped attempt and Foley hit a swinging neck breaker. Foley hits a clothesline after 
Uh, he attempted to give a boot to the rock in the gut. The rock caught Foley's boot, spun him around, and Foley countered with a clothesline. McFoley goes for the pinfall attempt, only gets a two count. Foley does a leg drop to the groin to the rock. So, uh, again, imagine he's like Bret Hart setting up for the sharpshooter, but rather than stepping over, you know, to eventually grapevine both of the legs and do the step over, he just essentially grabs both of the legs and does a leg drop. As a result, McMahon demands that the referee disqualify McFoley. Uh, for that particular breaking of the rules for that low blow as the referee acknowledges that and turns towards the official to ring the bell Mick Foley grabs referee Mike Kyoto and actually gives him his uh, pulling pile driver and it was a pretty gruesome looking bump for Mike Kyoto to take it was a pretty good leap by Foley in that pulling pile driver so now the referee has taken a bump and is no longer a part of the match. Foley attempts to attack the timekeeper as McMahon then turned his sights to the timekeeper to ring the bell to stop the match. Foley stops the timekeeper by attacking him so that the bell cannot be rung. The Rock hits McFoley in the back with a chair as Foley is starting to chase McMahon to the opposite side of the ring or walk after him and stalk him. Foley is hit from behind by the rock with the steel chair. Back in the ring, rock hits a rock bottom onto McFoley, but there's no referee to make the count. Shane then grabs the heavyweight championship and gets into the ring, and the rock picks up Foley and grapevines both of his arms and is standing behind him to allow Shane McMahon to basically have a free shot onto Foley, swinging the title to hit him in the head. But Mankind is able to essentially duck, and Shane hits the rock with the title belt, knocking him down. We see referee now Tim White essentially become involved with the match. He comes down after that belt shot, the accidental... uh, Uh, Belt shot from Shane McMahon to the Rock. Foley attempts a pinfall attempt, only gets a two count. Rock recovers and eventually hits his float over DDT onto Mick Foley and only gets a two count. Mankind then responds by hitting his double arm DDT onto the Rock. His pinfall attempt only leads to a potential two count. Then we see Foley dig into the tights while his sweatpants and digs out the Sako character and puts it on his wrist and applies the mandible claw. As The Rock is struggling to gain his senses and trying to fight back, he has now been brought down to the canvas. Referee Tim White is checking on The Rock. The Rock is trying to battle to escape, but is not able to answer Tim White's you know, call for a submission. And referee Tim White decides to call for the bell for a crowd eruption, and it appears that Mankind has won the match and has won the WWF Championship. Vince McMahon decides to now insert his involvement again back into the match and declaring that The Rock did not tap out, nor did The Rock say, I quit. So he, because he did not submit to the Mandible Claw, yes, Mankind won the match, but the only way to win the WWF championship is by pinfall or submission. And since neither of those technically happened because the ref called the bell, 
not due to the to the the you know the wrestlers quitting the match. Still, World Wrestling Federation champion is The Rock. Post match, we see uh, Shane trying to uh, break up McFoley's attempt to do the mandible claw on Vince McMahon with a chair shot. When Shane hits a chair shot to the back of McFoley. Foley turns around and does the mandible claw to Shane. We see Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe then do a run in only to essentially get beat up by Mick Foley. It is finally the efforts of the big boss man and Ken Shamrock who also come down to the ring and they start to attack Mick Foley so that rock can then, uh, you know, essentially recover from losing the match, but not losing his championship for the corporation to essentially finish strong and rock somehow retained, even though the referee called for the bell. So, you know, the school of discipline where something, uh, a bully, uh, a pet, whatever is constantly hitting things and attacking things and fighting things. And then it gets hit and all of a sudden wakes up. It's like, Oh wait, that hurts. I've been doing that. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. That's how I feel right now. Because I loved this match, and I was actually debating top five. (laughs) What? Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Really? And I think if social media and the internet was as big then as it is now, this would be looked at as Yes-A-Mania or Kofi-Mania of Mick Foley's rise, and everything's against him, and the crowds love him and the fans are into him and the fans just want to see him win that title. And this, there's so much going on here and everything's against him. And it looks like he finally won it and he gets screwed over yet again. Rock and mankind have great chemistry. I thought there was so much action going on in the ring. I love Vince's shenanigans. I love fully. I thought he was having great promos before the match. I love him attacking everyone after I love the storyline of, of I never thought I would be WWF champion, but now there's a chance I can be, and you're doing everything to take it away from me. And I can't live with that. Now that I know there's a chance I could have it, that's all I want in my life. Like, I really just love the, sto- the whole story aspect of it. I got to watch the, the match where he wins the title. I think it was like two weeks after this. Well, that it aired. Like I, I loved every bit of it for real. Huh? Yeah. I was not expecting you to love it so much. Yeah. I just thought it was so overbooked that I didn't like it. And, you know, not to take away. I thought mankind was good. I thought the rock was, I thought the match itself was good, but there wasn't anything that really stood out to me. It wasn't like that. The over the edge match, and that it's probably, to me, the best comparison for this out of the ones that we have watched just because of the shenanigans that happens before the the element of having, um, you know, Vince there. So, yeah. So when I compare that to Over the Edge, which to me is the best one with all these shenanigans in, this one falls more with the Unforgiven main event, which was you know, Austin and dude love and Austin hitting the chair and it ends on the down note. Now I know educator always brings up the fact that he always remembers this match as being the end of the pay-per-view or the main event, but there's not, I mean, we still have the, 
the Buried Alive match. And I think they learned from their mistake from ending on that controversial note. And I think that's kind of why the Buried Alive match is the last match on the card is because it actually, you, you leave the event happy um, that the face goes over uh, comparative to more intrigue leading to the next pay-per-view, which is something that, you know, Kevin, that you've talked about previously that it's just leading to the next pay-per-view. So I'm going to guess two that that's probably why you liked it a lot more than we did, or at least I did Um, not to speak for the educator, but if this would have been the main event and if this is how the pay-per-view ended, do you think you would have liked it as much? I, I don't know because I do have serious issues with pay-per-views not ending completely clean, dusty finishes, you know, stuff like that. So I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah it's a good point because there's something more coming up after this. I did see it in a different light. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. If the pay-per-view ended with mankind flipping out and all, I think I'd be mad like what in the hell that's not how you on the show yeah i'm just real shocked i'm really shocked right now i mean also for the buried live match being last wasn't the first buried alive match last because they're claiming it was unsanctioned so it was like past the official pay-per-view point i think it was just a way to get the executioner to headline of an event <laughs> it's like it's like when savio was the uh uh the the <laughs> what's the mystery, mystery partner yeah um, so anyways, moving on from that, like I said, we have one more match to go. We get a video, uh, showing Austin and taker, and then we get our main event, which is the undertaker with Paul bearer taking on stone cold, Steve Austin in the second buried alive match that we had, we get to cover here. So, uh, educator, you have a hot take on buried alive matches because you find them exciting all the time. That would be a no, sir. Um, yeah, there is probably a reason why I, uh, don't remember this match because this, for me, it was absolutely brutal to sit through, um, was not a fan of the back and forth between Austin, the undertaker, them dragging themselves back to the grave, back to the ring, back to the grave, back to the ring. Um, this was very tough to get through. And then the finish of the match, and while I appreciate the involvement of Kane to try to continue that storyline with The Undertaker and and Kane and everything that had happened with Paul Bearer now siding back with The Undertaker and, and turning on Kane, while I appreciate that particular part, just the the very end with the crane operator trying with the backhoe, trying to get that dirt to drop and then eventually bury the undertaker. It was just so poorly timed and whoever the crane operator or the backhoe operator was, I'm sure probably got a very huge earful from the WWF management because it did not come across very well on TV. In fact, at one point you hear Austin verbally telling referee Earl Hebner, you know, what the hell this is taking way too long. And yeah, it was just not a good way to finish this show. See, I wondered if it was the operator taking too long or undertaker getting into the trap door taken too long or was it quite sure but i mean hey the show started with hose and now it ends with a hoe 
this was not my favorite hoe of the <laughs> night, just so you know. <laughs> uh, so, educator, did you do you want to break this one down? Unfortunately, I, I will. Um, so we essentially get a lot of brawling in the aisle to start the match near the gravesite itself. We see Austin choking the Undertaker with a, some more video cables that had been used throughout the night. Austin and Taker brawl using the guardrails that are near the uh, the gravesite itself. In fact, at one point, Austin picked up a, a guardrail with the intent of slamming it over Undertaker's body, but Undertaker ends up kicking him, causing Austin to fall down, and essentially he dropped the guardrail kind of like on himself. We see back in the ring the Thez press that Austin's known to do onto the Undertaker, and that got a pretty good crowd pop. Austin ends up yanking uh, both of Undertaker's legs to the corner ring post, and he's standing outside the ring and essentially crotches the Undertaker into the corner ring post. Austin sends Undertaker into the ring steps on the floor. Eventually, the Undertaker uh, recovers and tosses Steve Austin over the Spanish announce table. We see Austin trying to do a pile driver to the Undertaker on the floor near the Spanish announce table on a concrete, but the Undertaker ends up reversing that pile driver attempt for a back body drop, dropping Austin onto the concrete. Outside the ring, both men continue to brawl back and forth. They eventually work their way back to the grave, and both Undertaker and Austin end up inside of the grave itself, standing and then eventually brawling back and forth. So there's a bunch of punches and kicks and chokes back and forth. They leave the grave area and essentially go brawl near the crowd itself to try to get some more uh, heat and, and involvement from the crowd. They work their way back to ringside where Undertaker clocks Austin over the head with a chair shot. Undertaker catches Steve Austin trying to leap off the apron uh, towards him and he basically bear hugs him and does an avalanche bear hug uh, squash to Austin into one of the corner ring posts. Undertaker essentially leads Austin back to the grave site and throws him onto the mound of, of soil and then eventually rolls Austin into the grave. We see Austin eventually crawling out of the grave and hits Undertaker with a metal gas can that Undertaker had carried up to the grave itself. Austin is able to take that metal gas can and clock the Undertaker over the head two times with it, and then he ends up giving the Stone Cold Stunner to the Undertaker, and then uh, Undertaker rolls into the grave and falls into the grave. We see Steve Austin get a wheelbarrow that has already been filled with a bunch of soil, and he carries that or pushes that wheelbarrow over and dumps all of the dirt onto the Undertaker. And we see a picture, uh, our camera shot of the Undertaker and his body being somewhat covered with that wheelbarrow full of soil. And then Austin just leaves in the middle of the night. <laughs> he just walks away and he heads backstage. And in the background, we can see a little bit of the 
you know, entrance racking for one of the the rocks portraits that was a part of the uh, entryway. It starts to rise up in the air. So we're under the impression that there's going to be some kind of vehicle coming because we have seen this before whenever the Titan Tron or any of the staging decides to lift up and move. It's usually because Austin is bringing a vehicle in. So to try to cover for the time it was going to take for the staging to modify itself so that a vehicle can drive in, we essentially see the Undertaker crawl out of the grave where he was partially buried with a wheelbarrow full of soil. And then there is this massive grave explosion of fire. And then Kane suddenly comes out of the grave and begins to attack with the Undertaker. Kane and Undertaker continue to brawl back and forth. And it eventually ends with Kane um, tombstoning the Undertaker, causing the Undertaker to fall back into the grave. And then Kane leaves, and we see from the background Austin, who himself is not driving it, but is leading out a essentially a backhoe that is already got a full scoop of dirt of soil that can be eventually dropped into the grave. The crane operator, the backhoe operator, was having such a struggling time with the actual scoop of soil and getting it to adequately dump into the grave. And at one point, we actually see Austin getting frustrated, and he grabs a shovel, and he starts scooping some of the loose soil into the grave. At one point, we see Austin telling Earl Hebner, God damn, this is taking forever. Eventually, the operator is able to dump that one scoop of already pre-filled soil into the grave. And it's such a small amount that we really don't, you know, it's nowhere near enough to finish. But the match essentially ends when we see Austin with a cooler with some beers. He hands a beer to Earl Hebner. And then all of a sudden, the match is called off while we're still hearing the crane in the background trying to scoop up a second bucket full of soil to pull it onto uh, the gravesite itself. Austin grabs a few beer cans, shares a beer with Hebner, and the referee raises his hand as the supposed winner when at that point there was only one backhoe scoop of soil put into the grave. Not a fan of how the timing of the match and how everything for this particular match ended. It, I would not recommend anyone investing the effort <laughs> to sit through it because it really was not a good match. Of all of the Buried Alive matches um, that have happened, this would probably be the absolute worst one of the whole, whole bunch. There's so much that goes against logic. And yes, wrestling itself can go against logic, but the, you put in the rule, here's what we do. And then as long as everything makes sense under that rule, we can go with it uh, for for comics, movies. Hey, this kid's going to get bit by a spider and he's going to get spider like powers. OK, fine. That's that's the different thing here. As long as everything stays within that, I want to follow you on the story. Hey, here's a grave that we just built in an arena. And the only way you're going to win this match is to put your opponent into the grave. OK, um, wh- why are you walking away? Where are you going? What's happening? What's going- no, you don't have to be in the ring. It happens over here. Oh, you're going to go back to the ring again. Okay. Um, you can't win the match there. So I don't know why you're leaving the place where you could win the match to go down this aisle to ne- another location. It makes no sense. 
hey, is that grave always in the arena? So, like, if someone's playing a sport or whatever at this arena, there's a grave? No, 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 of course not. It's brought in just for the show. Okay, cool. Why are there roots? Why are there roots growing in the grave, then? Um, How deep's the grave? Well, it's six feet. That's how deep graves have to be. And one of these two men is going to be thrown into there and then have six feet of dirt on top of them. Okay, are these two men ten feet tall, then? Because half their body is sticking out of the grave as they're fighting. Like, nothing makes sense for it. I mean, it's not Austin or Undertaker, because they're going at it. They're doing their best. There's a few shots in this match where I'm like, that's probably why you've had hip or knee surgeries, is because of hits like this. You know, like, they're doing their best, but it just, there's so much I don't understand that I'm willing to go into the logic of wrestling here, but you're taking me on different paths. And did either of you catch the best shot of the night and that is the cup of soda going into the grave just exploding over Undertaker on its way must have been tossed by Bruce Hart (laughs) yeah this wasn't that good of a match and the funny thing is too as I'm watching it I was I was thinking to myself it just goes to show you how much Foley made that first match and yeah. the risks he would take and the bumps he would take for for that. Um, and it probably shows you why they really don't bring out the buried alive gimmick, you know, um, that much, if ever, <laughs> anymore. The biggest um, scene that I remember, or iconic remembrance that I have for any buried alive match is the one where... I believe it was a SmackDown. It was a tag title match where the big show hurls Foley off the stage to the grave and his body bounces like once or twice. And then he literally, he falls into the grave itself. That particular match that I felt was a great buried alive match. This one, oh, just terrible to sit through. Um, And then once again, you bring up the name Foley for it. So, I mean, it really is. McFoley making these matches what they are. I mean, to go back to the logic one, yeah, Foley, but definitely not Undertaker. They say this match is Undertaker's forte. He lost the first one and he lost the second one. How is it your forte if you lost it? It's like saying my forte is eating right and working out. Well played, sir. Well played. Did you have that one written down, Kevin? Nope. Nope. Good. I'm proud of you. Um, Yeah, so I think that's going to do it for Rock Bottom. So you know what that means, guys. Mm -hmm. No discussion about a top five. So top five. Kevin, you honestly, I'm very curious. Yeah, it's not going to make my top five. So majority rules here. I'm very curious. Where would you have ranked it in the top five? If you two also liked it, I thought maybe it had a chance of getting it at five, but it wouldn't have gone higher. So you're telling me that it would have replaced the 10-man from Canadian Stampede? I mean, you personally, Kevin, you think this is better than that? Yeah. I don't see it. Six. Seven? Top ten. Maybe. Just to run down the top five really quick. 
Number one is the Howl in the Cell. Number two, of course, being HBK versus Nash at Good Friends, Better Enemies. Number three is Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love at Over the Edge. Number four is Bret Hart versus the British Bulldog at Seasons Beatings. Number five is the Canadian Stampede 10-man. And just to throw it out there, number six is the International Incident 6-man. And there's no way you're going to talk, Matt. Into you're not having Vince McCarthy yeah. that this is better than the, that Canadian Stampede or, or the, the 6-man. No way. Neither of those two matches. So why don't we get right into... Um, the ranking of the pay-per-view of course guys we have done 25 of them we have two more left to rank so do you think this is top middle or bottom right, let's start with let's start with kevin yeah middle educator bottom see i think it's bottom too this yeah. i did not like the show as a whole Let's start from the bottom and work our way up. Why don't we start? So, Kevin, where have you? Where did you put it on the list? Let's start with that because it's it's going to go south from there. Um, above Beware of Dog. That's more towards the bottom. All right. I mean, at this point, if we've done twenty-five, bottom third. So, Beware of Dog is nineteen. Yeah. So, Kevin, you would have put it at the nineteenth. So let's start at the bottom and let's work our way up and see if we can get it to Beware of Dog. All right. Is it better than good friends, better enemies? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Of course, Kevin says yes. I will say yes. Is it better than ground zero? <sighs> See, I'm struggling already. Um, ground zero was the uh, the Patriot Bret Hart match. Ground zero was Undertaker, uh, Shawn Michaels. That ended in no contest. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, there was a finish to the championship match. There was a finish to the main event. Yeah, I would say that this was better. Is it better than Final Four, which just had the Final Four match? That Final <laughs> Four match, I think, was better than the main event and better than the Rock Foley match. I I, I would put this above that. I Okay. I agree with Kevin. Kevin, you agree with that. I, I would take yep, it. Yep. You said Barry Love. Is it better than Lumberjacks? Yeah. I think Lumberjacks is too high. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this. I would put it right above Lumberjacks. Is it better than No Way Out? Yeah, I would say this is probably better than No Way Out. See, I would put it right there. I'd put it below that. Hmm. Because you know what the funny thing is? Actually, let's put it above No Way Out, but I don't think it's going to beat the next one. What's the next one? Buried alive. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's no. It's not going to be better than the other buried the original. Alive no. So why don't we put it right there? We'll put it at number twenty-one. Kevin, how does that sound? That's fine. I feel I feel it not being the last is a win for me right now. So rock bottom comes in at number twenty-one on our list of the twenty-six best in your house pay-per-views. Of course, number one still being Canadian Stampede. Number two is International Incident. Number three is Triple Header. Number four is Bad Blood, and number five is Over the Edge. Guys, we've done it. We can see the finish line. It's in sight. Penultimate episode is done. Now we get to the finale. Next week on the show, we are covering WWF's St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Of course, everyone, I think, remembers how this one ends. And you remember the main event. Had a pretty big ending to that show, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, I remember it being a very creative ending and I really liking it back in the day. Now, I don't remember watching it live. Right. But I, I must have saw it like on a tape delay or, or something like that. But I remember really thinking, oh, that's really clever way of booking themselves. The out book, of- yeah, the book to finish. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, I look forward to uh, the culmination of our, you know, first chapter in our series or our first season i guess you could say of our show um i want to say thank you to uh both of the my co-hosts here tonight going through and uh reminiscing about this final uh december almost aptly named personally named pay-per-view the previous year we had the dx pay-per-view and so on and then in 96 we had the it's time so each of these December pay-per-views were aptly named supposedly for a wrestler or a faction. So, you know, kudos to us and, and powering through these 26 episodes and our finale that's going to uh, culminate next week for the se- for the first season, so to speak. I want to thank you guys for the wild ride that we've had so far. I want to thank the fans uh, and our listeners to the podcast that are checking us out through whatever podcasting sites that they use, especially if they are going through directly to the retro network and finding our, our podcast postings, please uh, get a hold of us through social media and give us some questions for our run in episodes. Love to hear from you. Yeah. And as always, I just want to thank everyone out there for listening. Uh, thank the retro network. Um, think HalloweenCostumes.com, ThinkFun.com. Just go click the link in the show description and save yourself some of that jingle jangle. Um, you can follow me always at Maddie Treats on Twitter. And if you're if you're on the Tinder and you see me, you see all the wrestling buddies, swipe right. Kevin, take us home. All right. Thank you to my co-host here, as always. Thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us, WWE Network for the content, most of the other podcasts on the Retro Network. Thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. You can follow us across the internet at TRN House Show. You can follow my musings and writings at Mass Library, MassLibrary.com. If you want uh, some out-of-the-network wrestling content, check out At Odds With Wrestling. There are friends over there, and I usually make an inside joke at least once a week. And be sure to check out those promos, fun.com and HalloweenCostumes.com. And I am so excited for next week. I've already bought my Valentine's Day cards. And I even got the, I spent the extra money and I got the one that has a card for the teacher as well. For the educator? Yeah, I hope he choo-choo chooses me. Uh, Your friends at Ad Odds with Wrestling might not, I wonder if they're still going to listen to our podcast now that Uncool with Alexa Bliss is is coming out. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, I know, uh, I know Joe post what he listens to every day we're usually on that list um adam does not but at his uh importer exporter job i think you might have time to squeeze in a little alexa bliss i mean who wouldn't want to squeeze in a little (laughs) alexa bliss this has been a presentation of the retro network